Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. From NBI Studios, this is Truth and Justice, a crowdsourced investigation in real time. I'm Bob Roth. Last week, you heard how Assistant District Attorney Aki spun the evidence from trial to create a narrative for the jurors that made Robert and Christian appear to be guilty. You also heard in the follow-up how jurors in this case used that information. In the beginning of deliberations, half of the jury voted to acquit. It wasn't until day nine of the deliberations that the jury began to compare the cell phone records to Robert and Christian's statements. And using Aki's interpretation of what the incomplete cell data showed, the jury slowly started changing their votes from not guilty to guilty. The state's closing most certainly had a meaningful impact on the jury. But after Aki finished his argument... Christian's attorney, John Dolan, stepped up to deliver his final plea to the jurors. This is Season 12, Episode 58, Dolan's Closing. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From Something Else, The Marshall Project, and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Dolan begins his closing by letting the jurors know that he himself and his client feel great sympathy for the victim's families. He also lets them know that sympathy cannot get in the way of carrying out the law. Quote, We know sympathy and fear and passion and prejudice cannot be a substitute for evidence. End quote. If this closing argument was formatted as a speech you wrote in high school, this would be the thesis. Look beyond speculation and theories, and vote based on the actual evidence. Dolan starts out pointing out a few things that we don't know. We don't know how Becky was killed, and we don't know in what order the three victims were killed. Then he continues on to provide some context. He says that cell phones in 2006 are not the same cell phones as today, today being 2018 when the trial occurred. Quote, Nobody checked their phones 30 to 40 times a day and sent hundreds of texts every day. It just didn't happen 12 years ago. End quote. Dolan isn't wrong here. To put things into perspective, at the time of the murders, the first iPhone hadn't even been invented yet. There were no smartphones other than Blackberries, which mostly were just business people that had those, 
And there were a few of the slider-type phones on the market with full keyboards, but even those were few and far between. It's hard to imagine today not checking your messages for even 20 minutes, much less two hours. But for most people, back in 2006, that just wasn't the case. Next, Dolan goes right after Aki's version of motive. Quote, There is no motive for these killings that has been presented to you. I respect Mr. Aki. I account him as one of my friends. But to say the motive in three homicides is selfishness is to ask you to buy a load of compost. End quote. Safe to say that Dolan had the same reaction to Aki's motive statement that many of you had. And to many of us, the lack of motive is important. This isn't a court of law, this podcast. This is just the real world. And I'm sorry, but if you're going to try to convince me that two teenagers with no history of violence committed this brutal triple homicide and arson and then went about their night in such a way that the people they spent the rest of the evening with had no clue that anything significant had occurred at all, you're going to have to show me a pretty damn good why. And selfishness, or jealousy even, isn't enough. Particularly, as Dolan points out, for Christian. If Robert's motive was selfishness or jealousy, what was Christian's motive to participate in a triple homicide and arson? On page six of the transcript, Dolan lays out his outline for the closing. Quote, So I'm going to talk to you about the law. The law that we had talked about in jury selection. The law that you must follow as you evaluate what has been presented to you. But then I will talk to you about Christian Smith's statement after you listen to the entire statement. And then I will talk to you about the crime scene evidence and the evidence that's trace evidence at the crime scene. Fingerprint evidence. DNA evidence. Evidence that was presented regarding this interesting person by the name of Jeremy Witt. The cell tower evidence that was presented. The cell phone evidence that was presented. And in each instance, I will talk to you about what was presented, how it can be evaluated, and whether or not there is a fact proven that you can use to support an inference of guilt. And I submit to you, ladies and gentlemen, they will be few and far in between. End quote. Dolan gets right into reminding the jury about the presumption of innocence. He refers to it as the bedrock of our judicial system, and he's absolutely right. He explains that the jurors are not to form their opinions until they have heard everything and the trial has concluded. Then he offers a pretty good explanation of how closing arguments work. Quote, Statements by lawyers are not evidence. And believe me, nothing that I say is evidence. Although I'm going to point to evidence in this case rather than say you know something or tell you something that is true when it does not jive with the proven facts. But remember, we are allowed to tell you what we think. We are allowed to tell you what insights you might have. We are allowed to suggest that you look at certain evidence and contrast it with other evidence. And hopefully, you will listen to what we have to say. And if you find what we have to say meaningful, you will at least consider it. End quote. Then he moves on to talk about circumstantial evidence. Quote, You've heard the distinction between direct evidence and circumstantial evidence. And Mr. Ackey was kind enough to point out that this is a case involving circumstantial evidence. And he told you that circumstantial evidence doesn't lie. And I agree with that. Circumstantial evidence doesn't lie. But there can be lies based on circumstantial evidence, and that's the distinction that you're going to have to watch out for as we talk about the evidence. I want to make sure that the distinction between evidence and facts is clear in everybody's mind. 
That is, evidence is essentially raw material from the witness stand or in the form of exhibits or documents. It is not a fact unless you analyze the evidence, follow the rules of law to determine whether or not you should accept that evidence as fact, and find it to be credible, believable, and proven to you beyond a reasonable doubt. Any fact necessary to make an inference of guilt must be proven to you beyond a reasonable doubt. End quote. This is how Dolan explains the law on motive to the jury. Quote, The last thing is motive, and the instruction on motive is pretty clear. The people don't have to prove motive. However, if there is a motive, you should consider that. And if there is not a motive, you should consider that as well. And in this case, obviously there's a contrast. Mr. Aki has told you that the motive is selfishness. I assert to you, ladies and gentlemen, that there is no rational, believable, acceptable motive in this case at all, which begs the question that you will have to answer at the end of the case. End quote. So far, Dolan is operating by the book, and the first 25% of his closing, I think, represents the reason why he didn't really put up a defense. If you listen to what he's saying, his accurate instructions on the law, he's trying to make the jury realize that this case is all smoke and mirrors. He's pushing them to remember that the defendants are innocent unless the state can prove beyond reasonable doubt that they are not, which he obviously feels that they did not, and I agree with him. Here's Dolan's explanation to the jurors regarding what the law says about inferring guilt from circumstantial evidence. Quote, Circumstantial evidence, however, is viewed in a slightly different way, and that is if there are two reasonable interpretations one that points to innocence and one that points to guilt, you must accept that which points to innocence. You must reject that which points to guilt. And if there's only one reasonable interpretation, you must only accept the reasonable interpretation and not the other. I will submit to you as we go through the evidence in this case, there are very few reasonable interpretations that go in both directions. The only reasonable interpretation is the interpretation that points to innocence if you carefully and critically look at the evidence. I mentioned before evidence, not facts. You can't just say we convict someone on evidence. It must be evidence that proves facts that are necessary to make an inference of guilt. And motive is simply not there. End quote. And after this, Dolan placed Christian's first police interview in its entirety for the jurors. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. 
That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Before playing the interview, Dolan told the jurors that while this may be tedious, it's necessary. It's necessary because Aki had simply cherry-picked two small portions of the interview in his closing, and as Dolan explained, that's not fair to use those two examples to frame up what Christian actually had to say. So he gave the jury the full transcript and had them listen to the entire thing. After playing the interview, Dolan starts going through the elements point by point. It's a very different vibe than what we got from Aki. Aki picked out a couple little things, twisted them, and then spun them into a complete make-believe story. And I say make-believe because the stories he told were not proven by evidence. They were literally just stories. A lot of what Dolan is doing here is trying to set the record straight. And unlike Aki's mischaracterations of things that were said, Dolan is citing page and line numbers for the jury from the transcript. I'll bullet point the parts he mentions here along with the page and line citations that he gives the jury. Went to work at Soak City at around 10.45 a.m., page 10, line 36. Same page, Soak City opens at 11 and closes at 6. Christian leaves work and goes to his mom's house where he eats and grabs his paintball equipment. Dolan points out that Christian said he thinks that was around 6, but also points out that he's a young man and he's trying to remember times from 11 days prior. Christian says he ate, then talked to Robert about paintballing and going to church. That was at 6.20. He then picks up Robert at 7 p.m. It's page 12, line 6, and page 33, line 16. They're en route to Sacred Heart around 7 p.m., page 33, line 7. Robert calls Sacred Heart somewhere around 7.03 page 12, line 21. Dolan points out that that call was confirmed by the phone records, although the actual time confirmed was 7.01, not 7.03. They head back towards Christian's father's house at approximately 7.10, page 12, line 22. They end up at Christian's father's house at approximately 7.45 to watch TV and play video games, page 12, line 26. They drive to James Workman to try out the paintball gun at 9.25, Page 33, line 38. They leave James Workman and drive to the AM-PM at approximately 10 p.m. Page 13, line 27. Christian drops Robert off at about 10.30 and drives back to spend the night with Jackie at about 10.40. And then Dolan points out the illusion of dishonesty that was created by Aki regarding the AM-PM stop. Quote, Interesting about the AM-PM because the people put up the Bank of America ATM card. But did you hear what Christian said? He said Robert went in and bought the chapstick and then came out and filled up the car. That's what you do when you make a cash transaction. You go in, pay first, then you fill up the car. There was no description about using the ATM card out of the gas pump. That is completely consistent with what Robert told you. It's completely consistent with what Christian told you. End quote. LeClaire waited weeks to go to the AMPM to check for surveillance footage, and as we know, that was too late. And he never pulled the receipts from that night to figure out if and when Robert went in and bought the chapstick and gas. What was done was they pulled the bank statements to look for a debit card charge. Then presented to the jury that since there was no charge to the card, they must be lying about the stop. No mention of the fact that they could have and likely did pay in cash. After the breakdown of the statement, Dolan puts a fine point on what he was getting at. Quote, now that's the full context of the statement. 
That's not giving you bits and pieces and then taking the little bits and pieces and wedging them into the narrative and then saying, look, we just proved a fact. That's exactly what's going on with every time you look at evidence, real evidence, and not just statements like, quote, you know what happened. And you'll never find that consistently happens when we talk about the other things that the district attorney argued in their opening argument. End quote. Dolan then moves on to present what he thinks could have proved Christian's alibi had LeClaire done his job properly. He points out that in the statement, Christian said they were playing Xbox. He says that Xboxes keep a digital log of when they were being played, but the state never looked at it or even asked for it, even though Christian volunteered to let LeClaire search his room, which LeClaire did. Dolan reminds the jury that nothing was collected that day. Not at Christian's dad's house or at his mom's house, even though LeClaire had access to both. He points out that Christian's mom was never interviewed, and he points out that no one who saw Christian that night was ever asked if he smelled like smoke or gas or seemed upset or was acting strange. Dolan explains that all of that was left out of the narrative because it doesn't fit the narrative. The paintball gun was never checked, even though Christian told LeClaire it was right there. Christian's car was never checked. And Dolan asked the jury if they'd want to know if the accurate Christian was driving that night was capable of the same performance as Bodmer's car during his drive test. Quote, Wouldn't you want to check it out? Want to check out the car to see if there's anything in the undercarriage that suggests it was up in Pinion Pines? Anything that suggests that the car was driven in a way that was similar to Investigator Bodmer, who was passing cars left and right? Interesting. And yet what? Nothing. Why do we leave this out? because it doesn't fit the narrative. This is not narrative beyond reasonable doubt. End quote. Before he moves on to the crime scene evidence, Dolan makes one last point about Christian's interview. Quote, That statement from that young man proves that he didn't have anything to do with this. All you have to do is listen to it and observe his demeanor and observe his statement and observe what he told them and the information that he gave them and the manner in which he cooperated. And that a 17, almost 18-year-old, you can do that and fool two homicide investigators? You're asked to believe that. And that is simply not believable. End quote. Next, he moves on to the third segment, the crime scene. Dolan starts breaking down the timeline based on the evidence. Tim Summerlee saw fire from the vent at 9.45. He arrived on scene at approximately 9.51, Dolan says. The garage door was open and he could see inside the house. There were flames from the upstairs vent, but no visible flames on the first floor. The fire department was dispatched at 9.53 p.m., but Captain Williams said that they were already en route when they were dispatched. Dolan then points out that it's, quote, critically important that Williams encountered a red truck with a white bed that was, as Dolan put it, playing chicken with the fire engine. He then narrows in on the lack of investigation about this truck. Quote, Did you hear any investigation about the red truck with the white bed? Anybody go around the Pinion Pines area and say, anybody out here driving a red truck with a white bed? Anybody go down to the Coachella Valley and say any of the friends or acquaintances of Becky and Robert and Christian and all the Javier, all the people that hang out, anybody drive a red truck with a white bed? Anybody hear anything about that? Did you hear Mr. Aki even mention it? Are we supposed to ignore this? That's what they want you to do. Well, ignore that because we don't have a way to fit that into our narrative. 
end quote. Dolan continues on with his timeline. He says when Tim Summerlee got there, the garage door was open and there were low flames on Becky's body. In fact, Tim said that it was more of just a glow at that point. Now here, Dolan twists things a bit. He says that when Williams arrived, the garage door is closed. But I believe his testimony actually was that he wasn't sure if it was closed, that he didn't remember. But Dolan also points out that there were, quote, high flames on Becky's body when Williams finished his walk around. The point he's making is that Becky's body was in the early stages of burning when Summerlee got there and was in full free burn when Williams saw her approximately 20 minutes later. Now, as an aside, I can tell you that that does in fact track, although Dolan misses the mark later. It's one of the reasons that I've been so adamant about the ignition time on Becky's body being at 946 or later, and I definitely lean later. I really think it was more like 955. As explained by Dr. Pope, When accelerant is poured on a body and lit, the initial flame will be big, free-burning, but the accelerant will burn off in one or two minutes. At that point, there'll just be a small, smoldering fire for a few minutes. The reason being that there's not much fuel available to burn. Pretty much just the clothes on the body is all there is. But over time, the small fire on the clothes will begin to, and I'm going to give you a little bit of a warning here, this next little bit is going to be disturbing. And I don't mean to be insensitive, but the term is to render the fat from the body. The fat liquefies and then becomes an accelerant. And again, please forgive the analogy, but this is important to understand. Think about cooking a ribeye steak on the grill. At first, the coals are just heating up the steak and everything's fine. But then once the steak reaches a high enough temperature that the fat begins to render and drip down onto the coals, you have an inferno on your hands. And here's the major point. I've said it before and I'll say it again, I'm not a forensic anthropologist and I have zero training in determining the burn time of a body based on the condition of the body. I am, however, an expert in fire behavior. And I can tell you that the fire behavior described by Summerlee and Williams lines up perfectly with Pope's analysis. Let's think about that steak again for a moment. Once the fat renders and you have a raging fire on the grill, That fire is not going to simmer down until all the fat has been burned away. That is, as long as you leave the lid to the grill open. The fire is only going to get bigger because as more fat renders, it will continue to drop more accelerant fuel onto the fire. It will just keep getting bigger, not smaller, as there's more fat to render and burn. So let me walk you through the sequence using that analogy. You pour lighter fluid on your pile of charcoal. When you light it, it can be almost explosive. There's a big flame, but that big flame only lasts for about a minute. After about a minute, the lighter fluid has burned away, but it's done its job already. It got the coals burning. Then the coals burn without much flame for a while. So imagine the coals are the clothes. That was the point the fire was at when Summerlee saw Becky's body. When I spoke to him personally, he said that he doesn't recall seeing flames, but there was enough of a glow that he could see her body from about 70 feet away in the dark. So now let's go back to our grill scenario. So then you put your steaks on, and after a few minutes, the fat starts to render and drip down onto the coals. And then the fire is even bigger than it was when you initially lit the lighter fluid. Except unlike with the lighter fluid, this fire doesn't die down after a minute. The fat continues to feed the fire and the flames rage on. That is the point when William saw Becky. And the fact is that her body would have continued burning for a while longer had the fire crew not extinguished the fire. 
The reason being that there was still a lot of fat left on her body. Much of her abdomen and her thighs had not begun to really burn yet. That's all more fuel that would have continued to keep that fire going. And listen, I know that all of this is incredibly difficult to listen to, but it is important. The fire dynamics and behavior are clear here. Tim Summerlee saw Becky at roughly 9.55. Actually, I think it was a little later, but we'll use 9.55. At that point, the big fire from the accelerant was gone because the accelerant had all burned away. So the fire was in this slow growing stage at that point. So my estimate would be maybe about three minutes. A three-minute window between the accelerant burning off and then the fat beginning to render, causing a much larger flame. There's a three-minute window in there when Summerlee could have seen the body. That's ignition time, plus two minutes for the accelerant to burn off, and then this three-minute window when Tim saw her body. And that's really on the conservative end, which would mean that her body was ignited at about 9.50 to 9.53. Now, that's based on my analysis of the fire behavior and an estimated time of arrival for Tim of 9.55. I believe Becky's body was ignited as he was on his way to the crime scene which would mean the offenders would have had to have fled on foot as he was arriving. And now, what was Dr. Pope's original determination based on the fire damage to Becky's body? She said about 20 minutes, which would put the ignition time at around 9.56. What we have here is called confluence. Two assessments done using two different methods and both concluding that the fire was started much later than the timeline the state used. And my timing is based on Tim seeing the body at 9.55. I think it was probably a few minutes later than that, like I said. But that's the time we're using here. But just so you know, what he said is he saw the fire from his bedroom at about 9.45. Then he told his wife. Then his wife called 911. She had to talk to the 911 operator for a few minutes. Then after she got off the phone with 911, they went outside and got in their car. Then they drove up to the crime scene. Then they got out and realized that Jim Ellis had followed them. Tim had a discussion with Jim about the propane tank. Then Tim walked up the long driveway. He looked through the door, yelled inside to see if anyone needed help, and then he turned and saw Becky's body in the wheelbarrow. So my guess is that was closer to 10 o'clock, but for the sake of this discussion, let's say he made that discovery at 9.55 for my estimate. So now, if we split the difference between my estimate and Dr. Pope's estimate, the fire would have been ignited at about 9.54 p.m., which would leave 29 minutes for Robert and Christian to then get in their car and drive all the way to the coverage area of Tower 88, Sector 1. 29 minutes. Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting? Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. All right, I'm going to step this up into overdrive because I'm on a deadline and I may or may not have spent too much time talking about fire dynamics. Dolan continues to point out areas that the state presented as fact, but in reality are just narratives made in an attempt to wedge in perceived facts. 
He mentions the fairy tale about the gas cans upstairs and how it's not based in reality. And he then circles back to the ignition time of Becky's body. And I think he makes a critical error here. I mentioned this just a few minutes ago. He himself creates a narrative like Aki had done, but his actually does fit with the facts as we know them. But in my opinion, it's nonsense. And I have to imagine that the jury saw it that way, too. So remember, he pointed out a couple times that the garage door was open when Summerlee got there and closed when Williams got there. As I already mentioned, Williams did not actually confirm that the door was down. Personally, I believe it was pulled down by firefighters so they could pull the ceiling in the garage. But it also could have just came down in the fire, but that seems unlikely to me. But Dolan used the garage door and the progression of the fire on Becky to propose that the killers were still on the scene when Summerlee got there. He even ties in the red truck. He asked the jury to work backward from the time the fire crews extinguished the body. Quote, Work it backwards, and it can't be any earlier than 945, which sounds about right if Mr. Summerlee walks up the road, the driveway, he calls out, he sees the garage door open, he sees the body is not a flame, at least with a high flame, he goes back, and now the perpetrator puts accelerant on the body, closes the garage door, jumps in the red truck, and drives in the opposite direction. That's what the evidence supports. End quote. Dolan's not wrong that this would be supported by the evidence, at least on paper. The timing and location of the red truck encounter even fits. The problem is that it ignores the fact that a handful of people were standing on the dark road waiting for the fire truck at the end of the driveway when the red truck would have had to leave the scene in this scenario. And that just simply did not happen. The defense should have had a fire behavior expert testify to explain why the fire was bigger when Williams arrived. I have to believe that this bit of the closing lost Dolan some credibility with the jury. As Dolan moves on, and I'm going to try to get through this quickly, and as a reminder, the entire transcript's up on our website for you to read. But as he moves on, he's highlighting the mistakes and the inconsistencies in the testimonies. He points out that Osterlo testified that he followed the tracks for half a mile or 800 yards points out that he asked Deputy Ramirez on the stand how long it takes him to drive from the valley to the crime scene, and Ramirez testified that it takes about an hour. Then he moves on to LeClaire's testimony in his hand-drawn map. He points out that there are no GPS locations, just a hand-drawn map on a piece of notebook paper from 12 years ago. And then Dolan reminds the jury that LeClaire didn't describe an area where a violent struggle occurred. He reminds them that LeClaire described the area as a whole, and he testified that it could have been dug up by an animal. Quote, If you thought there was a struggle there and someone was in such a deathly struggle that they died, wouldn't you want to check and see, is there hair? Is there trace evidence? Is there a piece of jewelry? Is there something? Nothing. Nothing except, he says, it's disturbed area. And Mr. Ackie converts that to, well, that's where the struggle took place. That's just a story. That's just a narrative. He's taking a disturbed area, what is described by investigator LeClaire, and wedging that into his narrative by saying, that's where a struggle took place. You don't have evidence that a struggle took place. You just have an opinion, a statement, a narrative. You can't be guilty of three homicides because of an opinion, a narrative, a story. There has to be evidence. End quote. He then points out that the jury only saw five footprints in the distance of two football fields and that the wheelbarrow tracks are intermittent. He explains that if a person makes a footprint every three feet or so when they're walking, then you would have 
He says two sets of 180 footprints on that path, or 360 prints if they were fresh, but the jury only saw five. And it's actually worse than that. The reality is that based on the state's theory, you would have three sets going out, at least one set going to get the wheelbarrow and back, and then two sets coming back again. That would be a grand total of 1,260 footprints on that path, and the state presented to the jury five. My guess is, based on the alternate juror's email that I talked about in the follow-up, that this point did land with the jury. Remember, she said that they concluded that Becky's body was not moved in the wheelbarrow. They determined that the wheelbarrow was already there and her body was just put into it, which makes me wonder how they then tied the business card to the crime. On page 27, we get an objection, and it is warranted. Dolan misstates evidence here. He said that Chad Birnbaum's fingerprints were found on Becky's car. The judge did sustain that one, and rightly so. I think Dolan just misspoke here, but maybe he was just confused. The reason it was a misstatement of evidence is because it was actually Bo Nash's fingerprint found on Becky's car, not Chad Birnbaum's. But now moving along quickly, we get into the DNA on Becky's socks. Dolan points out that there were profiles on the socks, and Robert and Christian were excluded, and he continues to hammer away on the drive time. He points out that Eichelt also testified that it takes an hour to get from the crime scene to the valley. He then brings up something that we haven't even really talked about yet. The fact that Investigator Harvey in 2016 wrote a report saying that it takes 33 to 45 minutes to get from the crime scene to the area near Christian's house. He says that didn't work for the narrative, which is why Bodmer then went back and did it again. And as Dolan puts it, driving in a way that no one who was trying to conceal the fact that they had just committed a crime would passing over 20 cars on his way down Highway 74 through the switchbacks of the mountain road. Dolan hits on the business card next, reminding the jury that Christian's DNA or fingerprints on the card does not mean that he was touching that card in that place at the time of the murders. He even says that he doesn't concede that Christian ever did touch the card. Then again, he circles back to the drive time. This time mentioning LeClaire's testimony that it takes 25 or 30 minutes to get from 111 and 74 up to Christian's house, which is about half the drive from the crime scene to his house. Dolan then asked the jury to really consider if the drive test that was done by Bodmer was actually born out of the evidence. And he concludes that segment by saying, it isn't. Next, Dolan goes after the fingerprint ID on the card. He points out the stipulations that the first time around the prints were deemed uncomparable, and the second time they were determined that one print was comparable but didn't match Christian or Robert, and that another analyst reviewed those findings and found the same thing, and then this, quote, We get Alma Flores' testimony, and you know that Mr. Ackie was real clever. He said, oh, with the advances of technology. There are no advances of technology here. You know what they did. They took a picture of the business card and a picture of the known fingerprints of Christian Smith, and they sent the pictures up to the Department of Justice to Miss Flores. And they blew up the pictures, and then she said she could make an identification. Here's the problem. She never saw the actual card. And then they tried to get her to say, well, people don't send you the actual items, do they? They just send you pictures. And she said, oh, no, no, no. They send me actual items. Three fingerprint experts came to the conclusion you can't match these fingerprints to Christian Smith. And one, with the aid of pictures, not the actual evidence, 
says that you can. And then she also says, and of course, those pictures are subject to Photoshop. Can you conclude that beyond a reasonable doubt, the two prints that are found on that card are Christian Smith's? Well, you would have to ignore the other people that have already looked and said that they weren't. And then you'd have to wonder, what is it that causes them not to send the actual items to the Department of Justice? That sure seems to be an interesting question. End quote. Dolan then spends a lot of time talking about DNA. I don't have the time left today to go through all of it with you, but essentially he's pointing out that there were problems with the business card. He points out that LeClaire took it to the DOJ, but then took it back before they could analyze it, and then he sent it to a private lab where the state had to pay almost $20,000 for the analysis that would have been free with the DOJ. He points out that it was only ever actually tested successfully once, and the first tester said it was a 1 in 320,000 match, and then it was looked at again, separating men from women, and they came to 1 in 28 trillion. Dolan says that the two numbers are so far off that neither of them should be valid. And then he addresses the multitude of times that Aki said that Robert and Christian couldn't be excluded from certain samples on Becky's body and wheelbarrow, when what actually happened was there wasn't enough DNA to get a profile to compare it to anyone. And then he again brings up the DNA on the socks that Robert and Christian are excluded on. Quote, Where would a person lifting a person into a wheelbarrow touch them or grab them? Around the ankles? By the socks and the shoes? Well, that's where the DNA is that belongs to the perpetrators. And the Friedley family and the Hayward family are not yet going to be able to have closure on this case because nobody ever went to look. End quote. Dolan spends a bit of time attacking Jeremy Witt's credibility, which I think was effective. And then he talks about the cell phone evidence. What he says basically boils down to this. We don't have sector data, so we don't really know locations. The state's paid expert drove around using some new technology 10 years after the fact and found enough data points to testify that, without sector data, it's possible that Robert and Christian were driving down 74. And that's it. They showed that it's possible based on the data. They did not prove that it did happen beyond a reasonable doubt. Then he moves on to point out the patterns of phone usage on Christian's phone. The day before the murders, he never used his phone once before 10 p.m. On the Friday before, he made a total of two calls. He points out that there were calls on Saturday the 17th that didn't connect to a tower and went to voicemail, just like they did on the night of the murders. This wasn't an anomaly. It's not evidence that he was at the crime scene. It was actually very, very typical. Dolan wraps up by just summarizing his closing, but I want to take a minute here for my closing to let you all in on something that listener and fan page moderator Teresa Dunn discovered this week. If you've been bothered by the business card, or more particularly bothered by the fact that Becky's footprint was found out near it, let me ask you this. What if you knew for a fact that Becky was walking around out in that area a week before? What if you knew she was walking out there after that big rain? when the ground might still be damp in spots. Teresa was reviewing interview transcripts this week and came across Sharon Coleman's interview from Monday the 18th. Now, I read this interview over a year ago and I didn't think much of it. She had just gotten home and she wasn't home during the murders, so I missed this. 
Sharon's house is the log cabin located just to the west of the Friedley house. She's their closest neighbor. You see a lot of photos with her house in the background in the case file. So what Teresa caught in that interview is that Sharon told the officer that a week before the murder, she was hiking around in the desert behind the houses, and she ran into Becky back there, taking a walk with Javier Garcia. Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Edited by Kelly Barron's Brink and sound engineered by Shane Yoder. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. All of our fonts across all of our logos and banners were created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design, and you can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, TruthAndJusticePod.com where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. And a big thank you to our transcription team, Pamela Westby, Kathy McElhaney, Kay Woodyomnik, Ginger Fiola, Erica Cantor, Danielle Rohr, Jennifer Ford, Courtney Wimberly, and Melissa Cardenas. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in several ways. To financially support the show, the best thing you can do is just go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You'll not only be supporting the show, but you'll get something in return. On Patreon, you can pledge as little as $3 a month, and we have reward levels. For just $5 a month, you get access to ad-free versions of all of our episodes and behind-the-scenes bonus video content every week. Then other reward levels include t-shirts, hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. Go to patreon.com slash truthandjustice. You can also do us a huge favor by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the brands that sponsor this program. If you have a new case that you'd like us to consider for future seasons, you can submit your cases on our website, truthandjusticepod.com. Just click on the case submission button and fill out the form. And the most important thing that you can do is to engage in our investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page on Facebook. And for all you tweeters out there, you can connect with us on Twitter at TruthJusticePod. And I can be found personally on all forms of social media at BobRuffTruth. And don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Thank you.